1: Actum, actum, Welcome to We Have Ways of Making. Talk with me, uh, James Holland. There's no Al today, but I am joined by a very special guest, Tom Petch, former tank commander, SAS officer, film producer, director, now writer. And he's produced an amazing book called Speed, Aggression and Surprise. And this is looking at the really rather revelatory origins of the SAS and the whole concept of special forces and Tom one character absolutely burns bright throughout this it's the extraordinary Dudley Clark
2: yes Dudley Clark who who no no one has ever heard of uh though he does actually appear in Virginia Cowles's book which was the first book The Phantom know, 1980s, Major The Phantom Major yeah. and there's one line in that book where um uh, the orconlect turns to um turns to Sterling and says, whatever happens to your project will greatly relieve Clark's burden. And there's just that one hint, because the whole thing was secret, so they weren't allowed to talk about it, he wasn't allowed to write about it, and, and the whole thing was kept under wraps.
1: Yeah, absolutely amazing. Of course, he's slightly better known now, not least because of your book, but also because of SAS Rogue Heroes, where he's played by Dominic West in a kind of sort of, I'm, I'm guessing a, a rather different role to reality, but...
2: Yeah, yeah, but he was a show stealer. I mean, Dominic West in a dress. Um, I've actually tried to get him a copy of the book, so I hope he's reading it, and he's going to continue into the next series. So, of I, course, I'm enjoying that character personally.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I enjoyed the whole thing. We had endless discussions, Al and I, on uh, about SAS Rogue Heroes, and while historically, and there's all sorts of problems with it in terms of, um, you know, bare-assed entertainment. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, when you're seeing Highway to Hell playing and and a kind of raft of, of British wartime vehicles tearing across the desert, kind of what's not to
2: like, frankly? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think there was a few in the bar. And there was there was some moaning about some of the veterans, but then one one of my mates said, "Look." Thing is, nobody knew this story, nobody was interested in it, and now it's a major TV series. So, you know, what what's not to like, yeah, really?
1: Yeah, absolutely nothing at all. But let, let's go back to the very beginning. So so what what's Dudley Clark's story? Where where does he come from? He's born in South Africa, isn't he?
2: Yeah, he's born in South Africa, and that, that actually is the source of the commando's name, because his family were at the Siege of Ladysmith, which was broken by the British, should have resulted in the Boers being completely defeated, but of course they then broke up, went into the veld, rode around on ponies and gave us a lot of trouble, and they called themselves Commandos with a K. So when he was uh, much later on in, in, in life, just after Dunkirk evacuation, looking for a name for the brand for his special force, he came up with Commandos, you know which all the British Staff officers hated because, you know, commandos were our enemy. And in fact, <laughs> uh, that is why the name the SAS exists, because as fast as they could get rid of the name commandos, they did. And two commando, which became the SAS. So the, there was an SAS before Stirling's SAS. It was it was actually a... Yes, it was.
1: It went, went and did yeah. the, the viaduct in... Yeah, the um,
2: viaduct, yeah. Colossus, Operation Colossus, exactly. So that, that unit was called the SAS because... Basically, two commando, which was a parachuting unit, parachuting commando created by Clark to parachute across the channel, come back by submarine. Um, the, the, Churchill's ambitions got really huge for the commandos. He basically yeah, yeah, wanted yeah. 2,000 men, a flying tank, you know, it became unwieldy, at which point the army said, look, you've got all these troops, we've trained them, and they're not going to be used for anything. Let's get rid of them. And the RAF went well. Bugger that! We've got 500 men we've trained here. We'll take them back under command. And anything that wasn't uh, a regular unit was called special service. So a staff officer typed with "Glee Special Air Service," and that was the that was the where the name came right, from.
1: Right, right, right. But let's just—I just want to go back to de clark a bit because i think he's he, obviously he's sort of key to key to your 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 work on the origins yes yes but but he is just such an amazing extraordinary character isn't he so he so he he grows he, he's born in 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 south africa so he's got those strong links he's got a kind of worldliness to him hasn't he like like many kind of british citizens at that time of a certain background you know the, crossing the globe is is kind of sort of part and parcel of of, of everyday existence but but in the First World War, you know, he he gets there, doesn't he? Uh, he you know, he gets in in pretty young. He joins up, joins the art- artillery. Then he's in the Royal Flying Corps. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That that's his. That's his. So when the First World War broke breaks out, he's actually a cadet at school when it breaks out. Um, yeah, because he can he only tries... be what,
1: fifteen or something.
2: Yeah, fifteen exactly. So he tries to join up. He's far too young, and he actually he gets into the Royal Artillery. He, he writes to his father, who is uh, a city guy, so he's a money guy, but he's out in France uh, running the Red Cross in France. He says, please get me a posting out there. Can't do that. He stows away with, uh, this is unbelievable, he stows away with battlefield casualty replacements across the channel, <laughs> gets caught <laughs> in Calais to, to at this stage he's, what, 16 is he or something? He's 16, yep. yeah.
1: yeah. And, and
2: it says, they said, Clark, not only are you not 80, you're not even 70, so get, get back on the boat. Then he thinks his next gambit is obviously the Royal Flying Corps are, are formed and they're taking heavy casualties. He thinks that's a way to get over to the front. But then, of course, the winter of 17, uh, 1917, 18 is so bad, they, they scrapped flying training in the UK. So he's shipped out to Cairo to train out there. And that's kind of really influential because obviously Cairo features large in this narrative. So he's down in Cairo. When um, Lawrence of Arabia, who's not Lawrence of Arabia, then he's probably Colonel Lawrence by the time he gets there, is out there supporting Allenby's uh, advance uh, north through Palestine. And they have a little aerial outfit, mainly crewed by Australians and New Zealanders, called X-Flight. And that's what Clark wants to join. He thinks X-Flight's my my game plan. I'll get in there volunteers for it. But unfortunately, they take Damascus and then on and on. And then they get word that Lawrence of Arabia no no, longer needs any more volunteers. And And that is the end of his chance to get into the First World War. And as he says, he walks into the desert and for the first time as an adult, cries because he knows he's blown it. And then he goes and then he goes to try and party in my great great grandfather's hotel, which is called Shepherds. But so you have got...
1: hold on, hold on, hold on, Tom. You can't just just drop that in and then yeah, just, just, yeah. just not go. On. So, so you've got a family connection to the the world famous Shepherds Hotel in Cairo.
2: Yes. Well, so my great 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 there are three greats in that uh, grandfather was a guy called Samuel Shepherd. Yeah. Uh, and he was a merchant seaman who supported the crew. Uh, uh, in a mutiny against the captain in the Mediterranean. So when they, when they put down the mutiny, he was thrown off in Cairo. He was young. He was about 20 and he had no job, no chance of getting another job. And he started working in what was then the English hotel, Hotel Anglais. He became a bit of a sort of, um, he became very friendly with the Pasha and stuff, and, he, you know, yeah, hunting out in the desert with falcons. Yeah, yeah. and basically the, the Pasha gave him, at a very low rent, a, uh, his, one of his princesses' palaces, and funded what became the Shepherd's Hotel Cairo. Yeah, That's so he amazing. founded that hotel, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it, and it got blown up, didn't it, after the war? I see, to remember. Mm. And then Sadly, that was that. And it, never rebuilt. yeah.
2: No, never rebuilt. There's a new one, but which is closed at the moment. Which is on there. but I think it became sadly because my great great grandfather was very much, you know, he was very much into the Egyptian Egyptian culture. But unfortunately, the hotel over the years became representative of all that's bad about Britain and colonialism. Yeah. Not that not that Egypt was a colony, but you know, and yeah, and, yeah. and when the riots happened, they burnt it down. But the sidebar yeah. to that story was the bar was run by a, a barman through the war and after called Joe the Swiss Solomon, yes. who the British could never work out whether he, was, whether he was a spy or not. In fact, we had a corporal permanently stationed on the bar to spy yeah. on him. <laughs> and he, he must have been the template for Ricks. Yeah, this must have been the yeah. template for Casablanca. It's got to be. He a yeah, white tuxedo absolutely. guy. And, absolutely. And, and, and when, the, when they burnt the hotel down, he, he went on serving cocktails right until it got too hot. And then he went, and then he left,
1: and then he disappeared. No one saw him again. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I well, we'll come back to Cairo in the war. It's something about which I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm incredibly obsessed. I've always been fascinated by it. And one of the things I have got is I've got all these, all these period guidebooks for Cairo, which are just absolutely fascinating. So you can get sort of, you know, prices of trams and, you know, how much things cost and all the hotels and bars and all the rest. Of it. They're all, they're all listed from sort of Baydecker to much more kind of down market um, travel guides. And you get this very, very clear and vivid. You know, when you add that to kind of film footage. Photographs and diaries and all the rest, but you get a very clear clear picture of what Cairo is like. Anyway, I'm jumping the gun. Let's get back to Dudley Clark and and so he he, he's just avoided the first war, but he then gets gets involved in intelligence, doesn't he? So he so his military career so far has been cadet, artilleryman, RFC to intelligence.
2: Yeah, I I don't, and and he's still not twenty. Yeah, he's still not twenty. Intelligence is a sort of strange word. He he is just he's basically a bon vivant. He loves vaudeville. And I think he's just—he goes to his dad, goes, "Can I go into the city?" And the dad goes, "The army's a far higher calling," <laughs> so he tells him to get back in the army. But but you know, I he goes back to the artillery, and uh, you know, someone in the mess goes, "Where's that chap been?" And they go, "The Royal Flying Corps." Goes, "Oh God, there!" You, you can imagine it on the bum warmer. So Clark realizes the artillery is probably not going to further his career, and I think he just gets bored. So he get—he does extraordinary things. For example, he goes and volunteers to become a journalist for the Morning Post during the rif war so he's there during the Rift war watching abdul krim um you know the the, the sort of uh, prototype for che guevara you know the 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 vietcon uh, yeah it run rings around the french and um spanish forces and he sees that insurgency firsthand you know so that's got to influence his thinking and, and the other thing is, he, he he loves women, which we can talk about in a bit. But his 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 love affairs all seem to be disastrous. He always seems to have some glamorous woman he's after who stitches him up. For example, he, he gets um, he gets involved with a a, a Russian uh, refugee, and she says, "Oh, look, can you get a friend of mine out?" So he goes on a mission himself in civilian clothes with a pistol to go through Serbia to give money to this guy. But then when he comes back from that mission, having given the money, he finds that chap, who's obviously a boyfriend, in a hotel room in the Riviera. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that disappoints him. Uh, and then he proposes to a woman. That doesn't work out. And that drives him into the arms of the um, Transjordan Frontier Force because he realizes he's going to be posted to Cara, back to Cairo with her. So he's back there by fiance. the kind of
1: mid-30s, isn't he? mid-30s. Yeah, he's back in, in, and, in Palestine. Yeah,
2: and he... I mean, all of this feeds into the SS because it, he knows the whole area, like the back of his hand. So Transjordan Frontier Force, just for those who don't know, was a mounted force, horse-borne uh, force that worked through what would now be Jordan into probably what is a bit of Saudi Arabia. So he rides alo- over the Hejaz Railway, which is obviously what Lawrence of Arabia blew up. And in fact, Clark, when he invents the SS, he put, sort of puts FUs in in the deception for the Germans not to find because they never find them. One of which is he uses the uh, SAS base. When he creates the fake SAS, he bases in a place called Bear Wells, which is where Lawrence of Arabia created the deception before he hit Aqaba in the First World right. War. Well, if the Germans had read their Lawrence of Arabia, they might have known that. And even worse than that, he, he says the HQ of the SAS in the UK is Sam House. I don't know if you know Sam House. It's near you, James. It's a stone Age fort. It's a, it's, a, it's a grass mound. And he says that's his headquarters <laughs> and ditches an envelope on the Jap- Japanese attaché. So he, he's got all this knowledge between the war that, that very much informs his, um, his experiences. And then the, probably the most important from the point of view of the formation of the SAS and Special Forces is he is in Palestine when it blows up, uh, literally blows up. You know, he's, he's looking forward to a game of polo in the afternoon the duty officer rings him up and goes you better get over here and that is the start of the intifada which is a disaster which the british are ill equipped to, to handle very few troops and then he, he gets but he gets but a which is
1: very to much the way with 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 the with the british empire at this time that the whole thing is sort of yeah. strung yeah. together with with hardly yeah. any troops at all and the yeah. basis that people aren't going to rise up and then when they do it's yeah. always a bit of a problem and, and it's a kind of knee-jerk reaction scramble. to it a scramble, exactly, to kind of how we're we going to bring these bring these people back
2: into line. The scramble is a troop surge uh, led by Jack Dill, who obviously we know then becomes CJ, Chief yeah. General Staff at the end of the Second World. And Wavell ends up there as well, doesn't and he? And then Wavell replaces him. Yeah. So yeah. his direct bosses are first Dill, second Wavell, and they go, "Who's this extraordinary guy?" And they file in their minds, which is crucial to his Second World War career, that this this very strange you know, bon vivant, you know, guy who loves film, vaudeville, with a Machiavellian sense of humour, is a very useful man to know. And at the outbreak of the Second World War, he becomes the man they go to to do things that, that are a bit out there, a bit out
1: there, yeah. I've got to say he I mean, he really strikes me as as something um, out of an Evelyn War novel, and I'm sure that the two cross paths. Uh, I mean, you know, whether it's sort of scoop or kind of sword of honour, I mean, he just sort of fits into that, these kind of sort of eccentric, larger-than-life, kind of sort of ever-so-slightly mad people, but kind of rather brilliant and, and sort of compelling characters as well. I mean, Dudley Clark just, I mean, you know, forget Wingate. I mean, you know, he was a nutter. This this guy seems to be the real business to me. Uh, he he was the real
2: business, and actually, under like when the Second World War comes around, what he's really so he has lost a lot of friends in the First World War. I mean, a lot in it from his artillery cadet corps, from the Royal Flying Corps. Uh, you know, uh, it, there's a photo of him back at school, and and half of them are dead, including the sergeant Instru- instructor who died at Gallipoli. So when the Second World War breaks out he has this idea he calls it subliminal methods he thinks it's much better to fight the germans using su- subliminal methods rather than the mass casualties of the previous war so his whole yeah. uh, sort of uh, so it's, it's, all, it's
1: all sort of shadows and and kind of yes shadows, sabotage and subterfuge
2: yeah yeah and so his whole um, motivation throughout the second world war is basically to reduce casualties to do things a different way to be clever and that leads to the fact that deception special forces operations in the second war are indistinguishable. Clark is using special forces from the get-go with the commandos to dissipate the strength of the German army because he thinks by getting across the channel when they're preparing to come the other way we can hit them in several places and keep them guessing. That will really disrupt you know their thinking and that's what he uses. He uses it With them, with the long range desert group, and then finally with the SAS.
1: This, of course, is entirely in keeping with with Churchill's thinking. Once France is over, because obviously, you know, Britain suddenly lost lost all its equipment, and it's more importantly, it's lost its ally that's got the big army. So, how do you fight back against Germany and the Axis forces when you're when all your army's equipment is sort of stuck on a beach somewhere in 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 northern France, and you haven't got a very big army in the first place anyway. Uh, and obviously, an, uh, an obvious way to do this is exactly by the
2: methods that Dudley
1: Clark has been thinking about.
2: And that's what happened. So on the last night of the Dunkirk evacuation, Dill's there moaning. And so Dill is now, Clark's now working directly for Dill. He's a he's right-hand man. He's his sort of a, is essentially he? his
1: PA. OK, so they've, they've, they've become sort of pally in Palestine. Uh,
2: yeah, they've become very pally. Dill saved his life twice. Once he, when Clark and him are in an aircraft, Clark, they don't have seatbelts in their day. The aircraft <laughs> is turbulent. And Clark flies over Dill's head. He grabs his ankles and pulls him back into the cockpit. That's one occasion. And the second occasion he saves his life is Clark is so successful at countering the insurgency. He becomes number two or three on the Arab hit list. And Dill says to him, look, you need to get yourself out of. Your flat. He has a nice little flat nearby, and get yourself into the King David, which is essentially a headquarters protected by soldiers. Uh, uh, and and someone who doesn't do that is killed. So Clark was uh, what well, Clark was going to get taken out, and Dill knew that and, and got him out of it. But so 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 then fast forward, yeah. So then fast forward to this is now um, the Dunkirk evacuation, and Dill here. Dill basically recruits Clark. He says, "I want him as my you know right hand man in 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 Whitehall." And Dill is moaning about the fact that you know, you've got to get the offensive spirit back. You know, what are we going to do? We've come back with no kit, no equipment. You know, as Clark says, it's the first time since uh, Melbourne that we've come back across the channel, having left all, lost all our kit. And, uh, and at that moment, that evening of the Dunkirk evacuation, Clark hits Dill with the commandos. He says, well, how about this idea? I've got this idea. They're called the commandos. We'll have little bands of men train them up and will go back across the channel and Dill knows that Churchill will love this and the following day is a Chief of Staff's meeting into which well basically what happens is Dill said go home and write that up Clark has a a flat in Stratton Street number 12 Stratton Street just up from the Ritz goes home writes it up overnight gives it to Dill first thing in the morning Dill goes to see the Chief of Staff midday-ish and by lunchtime, the commanders are in business. So, so literally within twenty-four hours, it's 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 conceived and amazing. A, a, and three weeks later, they're back across the channel. I mean, it's you know, in terms of the that era of the British Army and and military, that's an extraordinary turnaround. You know, uh.
1: yeah, it is. But but it's also very much a, a reflection of the kind of Prime Minister's stamp, which is this kind of don't argue the matter, just get on with it, uh, and,
2: Yeah, get on with and, it. And, but there's other little things about that story that are interesting. So Clark realises that Whitehall leaks like a sieve. So he, re- he gets an all-female staff uh, through a friend of his, uh, Rumbold, and they, they're on Eaton Terrace. So the whole British Special Forces starts off like it continues for the rest of its career, which is, you know, out of a townhouse, in yeah, civilian yeah. clothes, yeah. Some, some sort of quite, quite fit-looking men turning up for a charity-committing meeting to get briefed on a raid somewhere across the Channel. Um, yeah, it's an extraordinary sort of outfit from the, from the get-go. And the, the only thing I say about Churchill, Churchill's ambitions grow so fast that there's no way the commandos can deliver on this. They're, not, they're a little outfit, and, and that's basically what goes wrong. But he's just impatient to get on with it and take the fight back, yes. isn't he? And, and yes, you know, the, yes, the the salvation
1: comes in in the Italians move into Egypt in September 1940 because because it's like ah, oh, I've now got the excuse. And and actually, the Middle East turns out to be a perfect place in which to kind of fight the war because it's a good meeting point for troops coming from South Africa and India and Australia and, and New Zealand and what have you. You know, that, that means you haven't got to come all the way to Britain. Um, it, it's it you've got you've got oil in the Middle East, so you can get your oil from America for Britain, but you don't have to then ship it all the way to the Egypt either because it's already there. So that's another massive tick. It kind of links up with what's going on in the Middle East in Jordan and, and Palestine. So that's good. You know, it's, it's a fantastic conference, And it, it means that the British Army can sort of test troops, bring them in, test weapons, all that kind of stuff, but also test other theories, you know, whether it be yeah. uh, commandos, yeah. that, long-range desert group, whatever. Yeah.
2: And that's basically what happens, because guess who's the uh, commander of Middle East is? is Wavell. The uh, yeah, of other course. guy who, who. So when that kicks off, Wavel signals Dill and goes, "Give me Clark," and he yeah. goes, "All right, you can have him." Because Wavel's running around putting out fires without enough troops. He goes, "What I need here is deception." And, yeah. and Wavell also there's a little link there because Wavell obviously was on Allenby's staff in the first world war yeah of course so Wavell was there with the old um haversack ruse which we all know about in yeah. Sinai, and and he was there seeing Lawrence running around he's thinking well oh, he's you, you about.
1: and I know about haversack but listeners might not so just briefly to, to, to say so what I is
2: well so so basically the haversack ruse is be, is, is the predecessor to everything like mincemeat and stuff like that. it's basically yeah. a, a an officer riding towards the enemy uh, they open fire on him at which point he drops a haversack in which are the plans for the cunning plans for our attack, which are completely fake. The enemy then fall for that because it's really risky riding at the enemy and getting shot at. And in the Turks' case, they, they they position their defenses in the wrong place, and Alan hits them in a in a in, a, in another place. It's basically a, yeah, it happens over and over again. I can't figure why why someone like the Germans fall for it as well a couple of times in the Second World War. It's like why they can't work out that's what we yeah, do. Know. But anyway, but don't. I mean the the, the whole
1: um, Second World War and every conflict that's ever happened since is absolutely riddled with, with just completely nonsensical decisions that, that you really think you, the people who <laughs> yeah. make it ought to have known better. But you know that's part of yeah. Point. So yeah. anyway, so so yeah. So he's he's now over with. With with Wavell, um, and while while Dick O'Connor is kind of sort of creating the Western Desert Force, Dudley Clark is ensconced in Cairo, kind of moving and shaking and and yeah, yeah. getting ideas going and meeting Ralph Bagnold
2: and meeting Ralph Bagnold. So so the best thing that happens, of course, on the way. This is a little. Oh, this is a uh, this is a long story, but basically on the way out to Cairo, he flies out on the flying boat. Oh, he goes via Estral, which we can talk about later. So Clark uh, is a sort of a nascent James Bond, quite. Kind of character He's gambling yeah. nestle, which again is a is a is a den of iniquity and spies, where he runs a lot of fronts for his deceptions. Later, anyway, he flies through there. Then he goes round um, the uh, west coast of Africa and hooks up with. Um, the man that will become Leclerc and his troops, because the French are quite interested in the idea, and and some of the French are going free French, some are going Vichy, and it's all a bit undecided. But the French are quite are quite interested in expanding what he, what the commanders have done in uh, from Britain into the desert. So he meets the Marists, who are the French camel troops, desert raiders, and 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 they go. Of course, we can do that. We can do that. We can get through the desert. We could. No one in Chad, aren't they? So, They're all in Chad and he thinks, oh, well, that's a good idea because obviously Chad, you can strike into the southern flank of of Libya and and into the towns. So by the time he arrives in Cairo, he's already had that thought, sits down with Wavell, Wavell goes, oh, I've created the long range desert group. They're going to do this. And the long range desert group by then are up and running, raiding all the way across past Kufra to Mazurk. I mean really the desert story of the SAS is really the story of the long-range desert group they are they are the nascent SAS they're they're up and running doing raids and uh they come. because I mean, by
1: the to... time Sterling gets along, I mean that you know his idea isn't particularly original, is it? <laughs> I mean, by that stage. Well, no, he, Sterling, Sterling. It's it's it's, it, it's a moment in time, and it's a moment of connections and and all that, and that's what that's what. Yeah, but the thing is about
2: uh, he, he Sterling has his detractors, and I think you've got to be careful with that because cometh the man, you know, cometh the hour, cometh the man, Sterling saw and was able to put together what no one else was able to do. Okay, Clark backed him, but it was that moment. And I always think that that meeting, which sadly Clark's diary was um, kept by the Spanish police because he got arrested in Spain for that era, because I'd love to have grabbed that and find out how many times he met Sterling and when and where. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because he wrote Shepherds later on. So obviously those two were having these little... Little conferences, and we know that because when you, get... I, I suppose
1: the, my point was with Sterling is is the concept of by the time he dreaming up the SAS, what becomes the SAS L detachment, and then becomes SAS. You know, he's <clears throat> the idea of sort of small units doing behind the lines operations, even yeah, in, you know yeah. anywhere is 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 not new, and nor is it yeah, in, in North Africa. And the thing about Sterling, of course, is that he's got the he's got the charisma and the hutzpah to kind of get the ball rolling, and he's got the connections to make it happen. When the people at the top have been shooting on your estate and all the rest of it, that kind of just does open doors. And, it, it, and, and, and it, he's it, a facilitator does, as much yeah. as anything, isn't he?
2: Yeah, he, he's a very good salesman. But he's also, as Jock Lewis said of him, he's, he was a pudding if he wasn't interested. But if he was, that if, he, if he got behind an idea, then there was nothing he wouldn't do. Yeah. gambling fighting with GHQ or fighting in the desert. And that's the kind of guy that can get... But just to talk about that a little bit, because I think there's confusion in many quarters about what a special force is. So uh, everyone always focuses on how tough they are. And obviously the LRDG had extraordinarily tough missions early on. So did the commanders, so did the SAS. But that that toughness, what became known as selection, selecting people for the operations, was just the building blo- block of the force. What made it difference was its strategic command. You know, so if you're a lieutenant in, you know, the WhatsApp rifles or you're a tank commander in such and such bazaars, you've got seven layers of command above you. If you're in the LRGG or, or commanders or early SAS, you've got one boss and then the force commander. You're, you're communicating direct to the strategic commander. He is communicating back to you. So if you take a raid, like everyone knows, the Sydney each raid, where the SS go down an airfield gunning everyone. The General, Cloud Cloud who at that point, is commander of Eighth Army and the Middle East. He has given David Sterling a radio and he is coordinating that attack with an attack on the Alana main line. So that is not a standalone raid where, oh yeah, I mean, gunning down aircraft is great, What's better is scaring the crap out of the Germans behind the lines while you're trying to hit them in the front. So that is the, that is the nature of special forces, and that is what Clark created from the moment he walked into, into Dill's office. And actually, Bagnold and Wavell as well, because that was a separate... Clark had nothing to do with the creation of the long-range deficit group, though he obviously used them. But Bagnold went into Wavell's office to pitch the idea of scout car patrols to give early warning of an Italian attack on the Aswan Dam, because he had met... Uh, so that's, this is the English patient story, basically. Basically, he'd met an Italian uh, in the middle of nowhere uh, back before the war when he was with his desert explorers. He said, what fun it would be if war broke out for me to take a unit and knock out the Aspen Dan. And he goes, oh crap that's a really disastrous that would be a strategically disastrous moment for Egypt and and Britain in the war so he goes to Wavell to warn him of this he pitches several ideas and eventually gets into Wavell's office by hook and crook and Wavell goes that's interesting what happens if you don't find any Italians at which point Bagnell goes well what about some piracy on the high desert he goes right you're on that's it and and Bagnell thinks oh he's going to push the buzzer I'm going to get a clerk who'll take me down the stores we'll find some men but he does, he pushes the buzzer, in walks General Arthur Smith, as you know, he's right-hand man, Concery. And he says to Smith, he says, whatever Bagnell wants, give him it. It's like that, that was the moment that strategic force was formed. And from then, on, then, from then on, the LRDG gets lent to the Eighth Army, as do the SAS, but they always report to the force commander. And quite often there are kind of uh, power grabs, mentioning Montgomery quite early on in the story, yeah, but yeah. there are power grabs where they want to control the LRDG or the SAS or both. And, and GHQ keeps coming back and making it very clear you've got, you know, LRG squadron on loan, but they belong to us. And Wavell and Alkenlec were very clear on that, both of them.
1: Right, well, we're just going to take a quick break there. Um, we will return in a minute with more tales of the origins of the SAS and the extraordinary Dudley Clark. Today's episode of We Have Ways of Making You Talk is brought to you by the National Lottery. They've asked us to think about a question that's had all our minds racing at one point or another. What would you do if you won the jackpot on the National Lottery?
0: Well, and Jim, we are not alone. We're joined by my very good friend, brilliant comic impressionist. He's a great, great friend of mine, Matt Ford, um, who's host of the Political Party podcast. How are you, Matty? I'm very good. How are you, fellas? i uh, very well. How's Donald Trump? You're part of the fake news media, and I want to tell
3: everybody that the <laughs> the national lottery, by the way, and I would win the lottery every week if I played it, everybody says it. It's beautiful. I would get all nine balls, and that is true, <laughs> by the way. What would Keir Starmer think? The national lottery is not just an opportunity <laughs> to change your life. It's part <laughs> of the fabric, the <laughs>
0: fundamental on which the future is built. brilliant (laughs) oh you've just won the big bucks the national lottery jackpot it's a massive massive win who'd you tell first i would be tempted to tell no one ever (laughs) <laughs> I'll be tempted oh, to just keep it too. a
3: secret my whole life. And I don't know if that yeah. reflects very badly on me.
0: I'd tell my wife and she wouldn't believe me because she plays them, and I very rarely do. So she'd be like, what, you don't do this? And then um, the moral high ground in doling out the money that she's always craved in her life would be robbed from her. So there'll be like this fantastic double whammy. Because she always says, what will we do with it? What would I do with it? She ums and ahs about it. And I get double points. Because then I go, well, we're not giving the money to your brother after all, or whatever. I mean, I will. We obviously would have to give the money to about brother but the first uh, thing you have to pay for is a divorce (laughs) (laughs) Out. hopefully there's enough money to cover that as well the inner 14 year old matt ford if he could spend any amount of money on something what would it be i mean would it be saying forest related probably yeah just old i mean but that's
3: already what i spend all my money on just old shirts (laughs) worn by players no one else cares about and signed england (laughs) merchandise i'd basically buy a box at wembley a box at forest and i would just fritter the money away i think on signed football memorabilia but i would still i think i would keep my daily life fairly normal and then i would just Mm -hmm. i think i would go mad on the I think for me it would be experiences i do everything i'm doing now but better so i would join a gym that had a steam room i might move to a a nicer part of town with a bigger house but i would just i'd basically just upgrade everything in a in quite a normal way so no one could really know yeah and also i'm not that bothered about having a car I like getting taxis. I just keep getting taxis everywhere. Does that make me sound decadent already? And what would you, if you had to buy like a big, stupid daft gift to yourself, what would you both pick? Sherman Tank. Sherman Tank, you go. I think so, probably. I, you know,
1: Because I'd be able to play from that. Uh, whereas, you know, if I bought a Spitfire, it'd take me years to learn how to fly it, wouldn't it? And, and, and also, it would just eat into me how much I'm spending on it all the time. Whereas a Sherman Tank, you can park in the garage, and it would just be so brilliant to take it out around the village, go to the pub in it and stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I'd buy a Cromwell, and I'd park it in the street, though. I'd find a way to be able to. Yeah. I'd pay the parking for cents. To park it in the yeah. street. That's one of my major outgoings would be paying the parking fines that the council would literally smack on me. I mean, Matt, you know, politics, you spend money to do to do politics, don't you? Politics is all about having the cash to buy kind of influence. Is that would you do anything political with it, do you think?
3: I think I would I might lobby for a cause. You know, I've often thought, I mean, maybe this is mad right, but I always thought that the state should do something for people at Christmas. Like a Christmas bonus from the state. So either like a free pint or a free bag of chips or something basically worth about a fiver. And you've got to take it between the 24th and the 26th of, of December. Yeah. And it's either a bag of chips, a pint, um, I don't know, a block of tofu, whatever you're into, up to a fiver. And just like have a government catalog Well, that that be great? <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like a na- nationwide secret centre. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I would lobby it. And, and that lobbying would take the form of a Christmas event in the Houses of the Parliament. Where I gave every MP a gift up to a fiver and say, "Think how good you feel today." You could do that for every person in
0: this country. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't mind buying, you know, like a sort of Henry VIII-style suit of armor, but I'd wear it. There's no point buying stuff, putting in glass. I'd wear it. I'd turn up. I'd turn up to gigs in armor, um, and and swan about in a sort of kingly manner. And and I've recently recently for this play, I've had to wear one of those great big King Charles. Type wigs you know that goes that goes down to your elbows the great rolling curls i look fantastic in that in my humble opinion that is the best period of men's dress
1: ever you cannot fault it you know 1660 to circa 1715
3: yeah you, you cannot go wrong but it sounds like just what al wants is hair <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, are, there are clinics abroad al that
0: you can go to i don't think you need a, a national lottery win to sort this so, just like any of you, so when it comes to the National Lottery, I mean, it could be you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would to have played tonight, where would you keep your ticket?
3: I would keep up my phone, because the last time I played the National Lottery, I used the app. Ooh. It gave me a lot of peace of mind. Uh, well, I've got, I've got a rather natty blue flying
0: jacket, and it's got a little inside pocket with a zip, and I'd put it in there. It'd be on the notice board. It would be on our family notice board in the kitchen, pinned to the court board. Well,
1: thanks to the National Lottery for allowing us to live out a life full of newfound riches. I know my next move is to get a ticket in store or via the app, punch in my lucky numbers and make
0: all of this a reality. So remember, the National Lottery, it's where your numbers make amazing happen. Whether that's a big jackpot win or helping the National Lottery causes across the country continue with the amazing work they do. Thanks.
1: Well, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I'm talking to Tom Petch, and we're discussing Dudley Clark and the origins of the SAS. And we were just talking a moment ago there, Tom, about um, the birth of of the Long Range Desert Group and, and the kind of the nature of, of, of the SAS. But let's just go back to Clark a minute, because, we're, we're, you know, so he gets there in 1940, and, and right from the outset, he, he's beaving around, bustling around, kind of moving and shaking, basically.
2: Yeah, behind yeah. The so scenes. basically there's... Well, Wavell's plan, uh, Wavell's sort of a master of strategic deception, and his plan is to create the illusion of forces that don't exist that are doing things that uh, can divert forces. So the the first plan he gives uh, Clark is called Operation Camilla, which is actually an East African uh, deception that we're moving forces uh, down there to hit them in East Africa. And that's incredibly successful. Uh, then Clark comes across the fact that the Operation Colossus raid is about to happen, uh, which is the one we just mentioned earlier, which is the SES 2 Commander Op from um, England. Unbelievably, they fly, fly from RAF Mildenhall through occupied France to stage out of Malta to hit southern Italy. That is illogical. What is logical is that would come from the Middle East. And Clark goes, well, that's, that's a bit of gold I can use, right? So I can just pretend that raid came from the Middle East. And he's even more sophisticated now. He thinks, well, this is Mussolini and what, what Clark's subliminal methods, so subliminal means, you know, you, you put this fear in the mind of the enemy and they don't, or, you know, suggestions. It thinks, what would scare the crap out of Mussolini? He thinks, well, Mussolini's been running around North Africa, terrifying and killing people, and the genocides in places like Kufra against the Zanussi and the Abyssinians have been awful. He thinks, what about if I pretend this fake unit I've invented called the Special Air Service in, in North Africa is training Abyssinian insurgents and gonna drop them on Southern Italy? And and he stages that as a photo shoot in Parade magazine. And lo and behold, when that real operation happens, Colossus, you know, Mussolini freaks out. He goes, oh, my word, they've really got pastries. They're really coming. You know, and he shuts the roads. So the Luftwaffe at that point are deploying ground, uh, their ground units through southern Italy. Go, what, what, what's going on? They've shut the whole of southern Italy. There's people running around the hills. You know, we're talking about, what, 30-odd guys?
1: Yeah. You know, in rubber soldiers. So boots. that's quite a good bang but for they- your buck, really, isn't it?
2: Oh, massive, massive, and I think it had a massive. So, do you, a would massive you say impact. that
1: Colossus has a much, much bigger psychological effect than than, than actual effect in terms of damage? Yes. Because obviously, the, oh, the, yes. The, the, the 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 mission is a failure
2: in, uh, on one level, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. But Clark never cares whether the mission's successful or not because isn't it doesn't matter. Because his play is in the minds of the enemy commanders, and whether it's Mussolini, Rommel, or Hitler, what he's doing is he's creating that fear. Oh right! So in that case, they've really got a parachute unit capable of training and deploying insurgents into southern Italy, and I'm not yeah. very popular.
1: It's stirring paranoia. That's what you want to do. You yes. want you want to make make these 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 idiotic dictators, yeah. these people with, with very yeah. low geopolitical understanding. Actually, yeah, you want to start sort of putting the fear of God into them, don't you? You want to kind of sort of hang yeah. on yeah. their kind of sort of their worst nightmare. And that that's yeah. an incredibly it, it, clever. Clever move, isn't it? And as you say, the results don't really matter because, because actually, what you are trying to do is just 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 undermine them.
2: And, and actually, the plan, it, how realistic the plan is, also doesn't matter because he, much later in the war, some junk with a long way ahead, he keeps playing on this idea that we're going to land troops right up the top of the Adriatic. Right? Yeah. Why? Yep. Why does he keep doing that? Because Hitler's paranoid, and that's the closest place to Berkshire's garden So he's paranoid that if we did that, it's not a logical thing to do. You know, you are a long way in the wrong place to land, uh, you know, amphibious troops. But you're working, as you say, on the mind of a dictator. And let's face it there, by that stage of the war, Hitler is not the most well balanced individual No, he no, no. Well met, he's, I mean, know, it's, it's <laughs> interesting because
1: because you know, people always talk about, about Churchill being obsessed with and, and the British being um obsessed with the, of, with the Mediterranean and the and the soft underbelly, et cetera, et cetera. But actually the one person in the Second World War who is completely, totally obsessed with the Southern flank. And the Southern Front is Hitler. I mean, completely. I mean, the whole point of the Pact of Steel in May 1939 is so that he doesn't have to worry about it. You know, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's an alliance where they're not going to do anything together. I mean, that's the plan. You know, so so, so Mussolini will let, let Hitler go off into the East and do whatever he wants to do. And, and Hitler will let Mussolini go off and create his new Roman Empire that stretches across the Mediterranean down to East Africa, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the whole thing just unravels incredibly quickly because... The Italians are rubbish, and they make an absolutely terrible um, um, fist of, of Greece, and then invading Egypt, etc., etc. And so, Hitler then has to go; feels he has to go to his 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 rescue in the Balkans, in Greece, in Crete, and in North Africa at completely the wrong moment for him. You know, just as he's preparing for the largest um, uh, military operation the world has ever seen. You know, you don't want to be diluting resources or, or diverting any resources at all, and certainly not kind of you know highly trained paratroopers and very precious cargo to, um, transport planes to a, to a theater where. On paper, you never had any plan of being involved whatsoever. And, and it continues all the way through. And, the, and, and Hitler's gullibility for mincemeat is, is purely because of his paranoia about, about that being the place that the Allies are going to invade in the first place.
2: I mean, it's interesting you mentioned mincemeat, because that was a real revelation when I, when, I, when I was doing the research. So, Clark builds out on the SES. Essentially, the SES are a, a full, fully-fledged uh, three-battalion brigade in, in, in the fake Orbat. And the interesting thing about the Germans is they swallow this. They yeah. think when Sterling's running around with what twenty-three guys, the SAS appears in in the in the intelligence assessment of the Axis command of being a battalion of five hundred parachutists. And what Sterling and Clark are very clever about is they're lying to their own side. So everyone at Shepherd's Bar thinks the SAS still parachute. You know, he Sterling writes to Ranfurly, who's you know Countess Ranfurly, who's by now gone back to Palestine. She was very influential, I think, in connecting. I met her actually. Sterling. Did you? Yeah. Hermione. Okay, that... Hermione, Hermione. I think she was an extraordinary... Was she an extraordinary character? Yeah, she was absolutely amazing. Was she... She was a complete live wire. She knew everybody...
1: She knew she absolutely knew everyone. everyone. She worked for Jumbo, she Wilson, for, for years and, yeah. and knew yeah. absolutely everyone. Yeah. I mean, she was very well connected even before she went to the Middle East, but, yeah. but she was charming and so, good-looking so, and married yeah. to Dan so, early and that was
2: that. She was there right at the beginning. She was spying on the SOE office when Sterling was kind of kicking his heels around the flat, around his brother Peter's flat. So she, I think she was more influential than, than we know in that. But, but Sterling keeps her updated on the SES, but he lies to her because he writes to her and saying, oh, we're parachuting in. When they are actually by that stage going with the with the long range desert group, and he, and even people like you know Bonfellers, the um the U.S. military attaché, he's sending s- signals on the on the compromised signal because we know the signal was broken, so they go straight to Rome. Anything he sends to the U.S. goes straight to Rome, and on that he's saying, you know, the SS are parachuting. So this deception is continuing, continuing, and Clark's building fake gliders everywhere. Do you think they?
1: Do, do do you think the allies? Sorry, to interrupt, Tom. But do, do do you think the yeah. allies knew that, that the British knew that Bonapellers was was inadvertently leaking stuff? No,
2: no, I don't. Because if you look at how badly that SAS operation goes down and how badly it was compromised, I don't think. I mean, I would be surprised if someone signed off on killing that many people. I mean, they had yeah, okay. Jewish. So that story on that German Jewish soldiers, yeah, no, the German Jewish soldiers who got murdered in that raid. Um, uh, so the short story on that was the SS had recruited um, some uh, German-speaking Jews yeah, yeah. to act as fake Germans, and they all got gunned down. I mean, I yeah. don't think anyone would have signed off on that mission. I genuinely think that was a compromise of the first order. And also, they un- they stupidly recruited in that unit, that German unit, fake German unit. They recruited two guys who were probably clearly a plant. From the Germans, so they'd been right. captured in Tobruk, okay, uh, and then recruited. Okay, uh, well, I good, well, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you cleared that on one up. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. Um, but so, yeah, yes. so I was gonna say, so yeah, so we build out from the SAS to what eventually becomes 12th Army, which is an entirely yeah. fictional army stationed in the Eastern Med. So Clark's got, you know, he's got the Africans and they have like a, they have like a, you know, a leopard symbol or something and a panther and they're all driving staff cars around, you know, this is completely, complete fiction. Yeah. But what it means is by the time you get to Me or the, 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 the invasion of Sicily, it's really, and I, I think this is something I found quite interesting it's really clark's deception and not mincemeat because mincemeat is a small part of a much bigger picture oh yeah 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 because there's operations going on in greece and all sorts of stuff so the the idea that the germans just swallowed mincemeat whole uh you know that this was is not true clark had been doing this for years and he built the paranoia and he built the orb out which is the order of battle out so the germans and italians were convinced we had an entire another army yeah. Which then well, makes and, really, and really when Montgomery is doing place. all the planning yeah. for
1: for, um, for Sicily, he's he's,
2: he's it's all twelfth Army. Not eight. Yeah, which is and we and we're sailing people from the wrong places, you know, uh, even the SRS, so the SAS have now become the special raids one, are sailed. They they're wondered why they're marched round Suez in full full view of everyone, because obviously if they're going from Suez it's likely they're going due north, instead of which they go out, turn left and head to Sicily. But the Germans and Italians watching them go, oh, you know, the SAS are down this end of the med. This must be the right place. They must be going to the Peloponnese Islands, you know.
1: So, so, so Clark has got his, 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 his hand on all of this stuff. Yeah. So he stays yeah, he in bills, Cairo, he, does he, all this time? And he's, and he's. No,
2: no he, no, he, he, it's amazing. Okay. He Portugal. Goes to Lisbon, uh, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, Lisbon. So, so basically, uh, the the whole thing becomes unmanageable because he's built so many fake units. It becomes rapidly uh, unmanageable, untenable. He's also operating several double agents, fake agents. It's just you know what starts with him in a bathroom. Basically, no one in JHQ is working with Arthur Smith anymore. So he sort of kicks him out. Stroke gets him another headquarters, which is uh, which is down the road um, near Shepherds. And he takes over one flat, then, then two flats, then it grows and grows and grows, spins out. And, and, but the biggest problem Clark can see uh, that possibly not many other spots is he's so good at, the, at making up plans that it's highly likely a plan he makes up will be a real plan that he doesn't know about. <laughs> because, so, and actually it happens. It does happen because in Operation Torch, uh, just prior to, prior to anyone knowing that we're thinking of landing in um, you know, Morocco and Algeria, this is when the US come into the war. Yeah, yeah. Clark is mess, messing around, talking about French North Africa to draw German troops off the front line in front of Eighth Army. And, he gets, and that goes into the press. He gets a very swift signal from England going shut up about North Africa, never mention that in a deception ever again. Because what he doesn't know is Churchill by then has sat down with Eisenhower and they've come up with a plan. Well, Clark doesn't know that. And actually, at that point, he had got the controlling section set up, but they just hadn't told them. So so what Clark, so to cut back a bit. So Clark realizes he's got to sort this out. He goes to London to start to, to make a presentation, which he does in Whitehall, <coughs> saying, guys, we need a, an international uh, network of what I've got in Cairo, which is called A-Force. So in London, that's headed up by Colonel Bevan and it gets called the London controlling section. And eventually when the Japanese enter, enter the war, the same thing happens over in the Far East and that's run by Peter Fleming. It gets sent out there. So they talk to each other right. so that, you know, if, if I'm going to say, oh, look, I'm going to fake an invasion on Sicily. They go, oh shit, don't do that because we've got a real one happening. Don't do that. Do it somewhere else. You know, so this is becomes a, a, a coordinated thing. But after that, that's that's around the time after that he flies back. To Cairo, and then when that invasion happens, when we land in North Africa, he moves his headquarters over to Eisenhower. So he's then co-located. He gives Monty a sort of uh, second-in-command person. And does he get on well Cause, with cause Eisenhower? Mon- he get Clark gets on well with everybody. Okay. He-, he does. He's very interesting for a guy who's such an iconoclast. He's a real sort of uh, I would say people please. He does clubbable. Lo- you know, people like st- the club. No, <laughs> no, no, that word club. No, I wouldn't say. Yeah, he's, charming, he's charming, isn't he? He's charming. He's charming. He has. He's very bright. He's charming. He's. He's. he's yeah. You know, he's very liked by by everyone in command, and they, they all go to him. Like Alexander, when they get stuck in southern Italy, it's Alexander who calls him over and goes, what do we do about this? We're going to land in Anzio. Can you help us? And of course, he then comes up with another deception on that plan. So when they go short Anzio, they fight for two days because the Germans are in the wrong place. We all know that goes wrong, but that's not. that's, that's not Clark's fault. I think what must have annoyed Clark is a lot of his deceptions are incredibly successful and then they get ballsed up on the ground because nobody moves fast enough. You know, it's sort of, oh yeah, well, we've got it. You know, Crusader was one, Anzio was another. But no, he goes over to Eisenhower because he wants to, they realise, him and Bevan realise they've got to coordinate the whole thing uh, and come up with a coherent plan, uh, which is part of Bodyguard for how this, the deception will run to the end of the war, basically, which is, you know, invading Greece, invading Southern... Southern France, he says they should not pretend they're not going to invade Sicily, and that's where he falls out with well, it doesn't fall out with uh Ewan Montagu, who's the kind of the manager of um uh Mincemeat, but he thinks Mincemeat's an unnecessary risk because the trouble with Ewan Montagu, he's he's not in that firmament. The creator of Mincemeat is a guy in uh Montagu's in naval intelligence and he's quite junior and quite frustrated. And he doesn't like Bevan and he doesn't really like Clark. He does a sort of hatchet job memo. And then when he sees mincemeat, the plan, he jumps on that and takes it his own. And, of course, Churchill absolutely loves that. He goes brilliant. Yeah, it's a brilliant plan. We'll drop a body in the med uh, and, then, and then that'll be great. It'll be just like the haversack ruse. But yeah. Clark goes, well, that's a bad idea because nobody in their right mind is going to think we're not going to land on Sicily. Like, nobody. Everyone knows we're going to do it, so what we should be doing... Well, is the only person the who, does,
1: who, who thinks it'll be otherwise is Hitler, but, but, but Minsk doesn't seem to, to, to change his mind at all, because he was already of that mind in the first place.
2: He was all right, exactly. But what Clark's very good at on the sort of more operational level is he's, he's got things running in Greece... And then when, yeah. the, when the invasion actually starts, he he has uh, exploding parachutes. You you you'll know this from your your actually you, 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 so the, the exploding parachute thing, the fake naval bombardment at the wrong end of the island. That is a Clark A Force operation. In fact, one of his team get killed because sadly they're in a Dakota dropping uh, exploding parachutes, which are uh, fake dummies, uh, which is quite a dangerous occupation in a gale with flat coming up, and they get knocked out. No one knows what happens to them. The whole plane blows up. Uh, but that, but that, you know, that again is Clark. I think the problem is after the war, you know, Monty gets to write a book, uh, yeah. the man who never was, and and Clark gets to shut up about it. So yep. a lot of this stuff, Clark never is allowed to say. Well, yeah, that was interesting, but actually, shall I tell you the whole picture? This is what we were doing as well. You know, the the whole fake life. And he never writes a book
1: yesterday. at all, does he, Dudley Clark? He dies in nineteen seventy-four no, or it's, whatever. Is it like a,
2: yeah, it's a bit of a sad history that because you can see his frustration because you have Me comes out. Then you have I Was Monty's Double. So he I Was Monty's Double is one of his plays. And yeah, of he, course, yeah. He's in a, he's in a cinema in Italy watching, I forget which it's not two Graves Past Cairo, but it's one of those 1940s war films, and a, a Rod Tanks officer appears, he goes, Bloody hell, that looks like Montgomery. Oh, you could cast him, send him around the Med, and that would divert troops, uh Germans from Normandy, which he does. And then the guy who he cast to play the act, the actor he cast, then writes his own book. And Clark's <laughs> sitting there, 50s, <laughs> 60s, 70s, going. Oh, this is ridiculous. And he tries to get it out there, but every time he goes to the, what was then, war office, they go, nope, nope, we're keeping this secret. You know, this is all secret, in case we need it for the Russians.
1: And tell me, the, the, the famous or infamous double picture of him dressed as a woman, then dressed as a man, um, uh, dressed as who he is. I mean, w- w- what's all that about?
2: So, It's a red what?
1: herring, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a non-story. No, I'll tell, tell you what
2: that's about. I'll tell you what that's about because I did look into that. So so everyone—that's everyone's sort of, a, it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing. Oh, yeah, Clark wears a dress. He was a heterosexual man who uh, loved women but also loved women's clothes. My guess is he spent a lot of time in Germany uh, before the war, before Hitler appeared. So we're talking about cabaret, you yeah. know, the era of cabaret. And he loved all that. You look at pictures of him in his double-breasted suit heading down to, you know, well, he was actually the Nuremberg Rally. Uh, but you look at the pictures of him, you think, yeah, that's the kind of guy who probably did go to those clubs. And he picked up on that. And then I think what's interesting about that is at some point he started using dresses as part of his cover because he was picked up with, you know, two uh, well-fitting, well-fitting dresses. We're talking, you know, enough wardrobe to, to carry this off for a period of time. And he went to Istanbul. One of his most successful plays early in the war was he went to Istanbul. And I suspect him and their, and the Naval Intelligence Office over there were running around the nightclubs and whatever, recruiting double agents, which they did successfully, really successfully. That was, became one of the main conduits for his uh, running uh, fake stories into the Axis camp. The trouble with that play was that When the Germans invade Russia, obviously everyone in Istanbul wants to shut up about it. no one wants to work for Clark anymore because they think the Germans are going to come. That forces him into Estoril, which is in Portugal, to try and do the same thing. But that's a very small market for intelligence. The biggest market, of course, is Madrid. Um, The trouble is, in Madrid, there is no opposite number like he has in Wolfson, who is based in Istanbul. And he has to go in cold um, and basically with his dress... And he gets picked up. And he has checked in with the British intelligence in Madrid, but that's a, he, the, the head of the British intelligence in Madrid is a notoriously difficult character. So Clark sort of circumvents him and goes goes lone and blows it and is picked up. At which point, the British intelligence go, Oh my word, Clark in a dress, this is a disaster. And obviously, in that era, there's confusion about whether he could be gay or mad. You know, these signals fly backwards and forwards. And then the, and, and, and the Orkinleck is trying to get him back to Cairo, because they're about to carry out what was then um, the Crusader attack. Um, And Churchill is wanting him back in, uh, in, Churchill overrides that, wants him back in the UK. So Clark is put on a boat back to the UK, and as luck would have it, the ship is torpedoed, at which point he's rescued, sent back to Gibraltar, where he doesn't tell anyone he survived. And then he gets on a flying boat uh, he managed to catch a lift on a flying boat, flies through the Mediterranean on the night of the first SAS operation by David Sterling. So he flies through the gale <laughs> while sense. they're dropping out of their aircraft. What a I mean, you could make it up. I
1: mean, you could make it up. You could make
2: it up. You could make if you tried to make it up. You go, this is nuts. It's absolutely and, and, nuts. And, and,
1: and Tom, his story. So he 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 never gets to publish his own own book. I mean, he does some early stuff, doesn't he, in the thirties uh, about his time in the yeah, thirties. But he doesn't he do does. the wartime stuff. And it's and it's really Michael Howard who kind of. Brings him to the fore, isn't it, when he does his official yeah, I think experience. I
2: didn't. I didn't read how. I mean, I read. Uh, there is a book that the, the, there is a book called The Seven Assignments, which is very good, and it covers the period up until it gets really interesting. So yeah, so it goes up to part, kind of nineteen thirty-nine yeah, or something, yeah, doesn't for, it? Yeah, yeah, it goes well forty. It gets oh, to, it, it okay. gets him to Cairo. It right. gets him to Cairo. Covers Norway. In that, they cover his mission to Ireland, but he was forced to redact it. So my real moment of like, wow, was when I went to the Imperial War Museum and found his family archive and went... I don't, I don't know when it was... Actually, I probably should know when it was donated to them. I don't know, but it wasn't... So all his
1: about. papers are in the IMM, are they?
2: Yeah, all his papers. So the papers relating to that are in the, in, the, in the archive. Wow. And when you join that up with what exists in the National Archive... So he wrote the official account, which is called the A-Force Diary, which lots of people, I think, have looked at, but I don't think they've looked at it through the prism of hang on, What's happening here strategically? If you, if yeah, you marry yeah. that story up with the SES, you go, oh, my word, this is a much bigger story. I think what happens now is people think of deception and special forces operations as deception. Well, and and
1: also, questions. when they think of deception, everyone just thinks of Jasper Maskelyne, who I always kind of think is a sort yes. of a red
2: herring and kind of quite annoying.
1: Yeah. Mm. But he writes a novel, doesn't he, called, called um, something like The Golden Hour? Well,
2: or yeah, that's sad, because at that point... And it's Ian a bit rubbish? Published, yeah, it's a bit rubbish. But I think what happens <laughs> is Ian Fleming... Clark's not allowed to write he, he's very successful seven assignments very successful book about his early wartime experiences he then wants to publish the secret war and I'll tell you James if he would written that book we'd all be sitting here going that's a book about the. <laughs> that is the book that everyone would have read I mean the pitch is something like this is a this is a battle between the minds of uh, British intelligence and the Mussolini and then Hitler fought by desperate I mean it was just like you'd read that and go oh wow that's a good book any publisher would have jumped at it but of course he's banned he go he takes um he takes the head of uh the, the war office you know what was then their disclosure department out for lunch at the dorchester and he says no mate you can't do that you're not allowed to do it so instead he's writes an he's written an official account which is called the a4 star a huge 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 files if anyone wants to look it out um and and that's the official account but what that is missing is the nuance of clark you know that's a that's a War Office document. You're missing a lot of the sort of more nuanced, interesting bits that Clark does. You need to fish around for that. But no. So then, he, having failing to write the, the factual account, he then goes, "Well, I'll try fiction." My mate Ian Fleming's written James Bond. The first. Yeah. How James hard Bond's can it be? <laughs> how hard can it be? And that also that is based Hotel Royal's based in Estrel, where he used to play roulette. So the whole yeah, thing, of a whole course, was all slightly B2. familiar. So they're all in the same. They're all in the same boat. A lot. He goes, "I'll do that," and the book's just not very good. Sadly, not very good. Fiction. Just wasn't his, he? Didn't hit it, and, and a lot of it features detailed descriptions of women's clothing. And you know, the, the, the heroine of the <laughs> survives based on her footwear. You know, so there you, yeah, there you go, Clark.
1: Well, I think I think it's just an, an absolutely brilliant story, and you know, Alan and I say this over and over and over again. But just when you think you're sort of starting to get on top of this extraordinary subject matter of the Second World War, you realise there's just a whole load more that you need to know about. Uh, you know, and I'm sort of a bit embarrassed by, 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 by you know, b- before I got to your book, how, how little I, n- I knew of deception and, the, and his part in it and all the rest of it. And, you know, it's just extraordinary.
2: But then, that, but that was the thing. I mean, I, because I, I was in the SES, we have statues, you know, of Sterling, Maine, Lewis. Uh, Anders Lassen's a big feature in that. And I'd never heard of Clark. I'd never heard, actually, there's another guy in the book, William Fraser, who's the fourth oh, Bill Fraser, back, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, Bill Fraser. He didn't get, he didn't get. Back. And then I realised when I was researching the book that was one of the early things I stumbled across. Actually, was I realised the British press had conflated his and Paddy Main's raids, and it was Fraser who destroyed the thirty-seven aircraft that they, that that GHQ went. Wow, that unit would get more of that unit because Sandy Galloway, who you know of, um, so who was he? BGS in the Eighth Army. He was a big supporter of the Special Air Service because his specific headache. Was close air support over the 8th Army front line. And he saw the special air service knocking out, you know, enemy aircraft as, as a great thing. And when, well, they destroying, it- destroying
1: 30 access uh, plus aircraft on, on a ground in one mission. That, I mean, that's a, that's a big number because the number of Luftwaffe aircraft in North Africa is never particularly huge, you know, because the Luftwaffe is so stressed. It's one part of the German armed forces, which is sort of absolutely everywhere all the time. And there's, no, you know, and they just get whittled down, and and of course, as the war progresses, they get more and more flung into the kind of Western front and defending the Reich, and, and you know, there's just a limit to how much you you can't be absolutely everywhere, and and so you know, you're never talking more than about a few hundred aircraft in total, um, operating within the Luftwaffe in North Africa, and and you know, so thirty lost just in one raid is, you know, that's a big deal, yeah.
2: It was it was over forty. He's, it, Fraser was a very modest guy. He had he hit thirty seven. That was confirmed because they had thirty seven bombs, but they they stacked them next next to each other because at that point they were they were not separating the aircraft because they didn't expect to be hit on the ground like that. But the thing about that, what what that highlights, is the sort of dichotomy between the Paddy Main narrative. He's a very tough leader. Kicks in doors, shoots people, and Fraser, who gets onto that airfield and gets off it without anyone finding out, and the Germans think they've been hit by an air raid. They don't even know it was a special forces unit on their airfield. So those are the two sort of skill sets, sort of uh, those two guys, and, and it sort of illustrates the two sides to, 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 the, to the special forces story.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, he's a, he was a remarkable guy, wasn't he? And, and it's sort of a, a sort of rather tragic figure, Bill Fraser. You know, sort of depressive, wasn't he? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think I think it was. I think I think the thing about a lot of these guys, I was listening to a talk the other day, and of course, what nobody understood was, uh, you know, what PTSD was, what what operating behind lines for that length of time under that much pressure would do to your mind. And there's a, there's a bit where uh, they have a padre McCluskey, and he parachutes into France with Fraser in 1944. And he watches Fraser and Paddy Main working. And he writes this oblique sort of... Um, critique saying they're operationally fantastic you know no question but leaving men behind the lines for this long is a bad idea you know they're clearly sketchy they're twi- you know the, all the things and we know are uh, sadly both Fraser and Maine drank heavily at that stage I mean the drinking after the war became a major factor in both their lives you know because they're and essentially self-medicating and, and deaths yes and deaths both of them die early Maine in a crash Fraser from alcoholism basically You know, and that is because they were self-medicating because nobody knew that that was a thing, really. You know, they understood shell shock as in, here's a guy who's catatonic from a bombardment, but they did not understand what we now know causes a lot of problems, which is the constant alertness required. Uh, You know, and you've seen a lot of that more recently from Afghanistan, that constant alertness where you can't switch off ever. You're constantly yeah, yeah. watching the yeah, the ground parties. You 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 just can't switch off. And even when you go back to bed, it's like a constant thing in your head and it and it messes with you. And you need to rotate people out, give them proper breaks. I mean Fraser, of all of them, was on the front line. I tried to work out how many years. I mean, he and he got mashed in um Italy in that dreadful attack. Dreadful oh Sheffield, yeah, in yeah, yeah, and yeah. lost most of his men. At yeah, time, he did. You yeah, yeah, If you came out of that, okay, you'd be, you wouldn't be a human being. Basically, I don't think. No, yeah. no, 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 no. no. It, it was absolutely horrendous. I've just been writing about
1: that, 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 that attack. Um, so, Tom, what, what's next? I mean, you, you're not going to stop with this book, are you? You've got to do something else. No,
2: no. I've got, I've got, a, I've got another book. I, in. I think it's you've great. got. A, you
1: you <laughs> must have a fresh, fresh take on the SAS and the Second World War, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, I've got some other stuff. Um, so I've got that going on that's along i found this is my first book i, I and james you write I, I hats off to you because Let's face it, I think it was Hemingway who said, writing is easy, you just sit at a typewriter and bleed, and that's what I found the process of <laughs> literally tying myself to the desk. <laughs> I will say, writing is not my favourite occupation. Right, Obviously, okay, fair enough. I'm an active chap, I'd like to be out. I mean, I've got, I do film I But you stars, must love the so research, don't you? Oh, the research, I love the research. The yeah, yeah, hunter I like I,
1: I stage, yeah, yeah, as yeah, as I call it. Yeah, yeah, because you go
2: in there and you just find nuggets. You always find one little bit. Like,
1: yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's incredibly thrilling, isn't it? And, I mean, is there a film of this or anything? Can you do something a bit more on
2: Yes, we've, With your production company. I think it's interesting. Yes, I think it's interesting. We'll see if people pick up on it. It's it's probably T V rather than film. But yeah, yes, be I great. Mean, obviously SS Rogue Heroes has been fantastic, you know. Um the Dominic West, Sally, they've cast Dominic West, so uh, the BBC have cast them, So, anyway, and also they've got Stephen Knight writing on that. So, we'll see. Yeah, that's a possibility. And then we do. I've been doing a film on the Battle of Murbat, which is another SS story um, yeah, of course. set in 1972 in Amman. Yeah, yeah, so that, yeah. It's that, an amazing story. We'll, yeah, that folded in uh, lockdown, Sally. So, hopefully, we we'll get that up and running. Yeah. And then I'm doing a few talks, including I uh, should promote Chalk Valley. What is yeah, it? 2nd of yeah. July? And I'm doing uh, Festival of Ch- Ch- Chichester, 10th of June. And I'm talking a bit more about, like, what I think what's obviously, from the bookstore, but this book, what's great is it's a kind of standalone. It is 150,000 words, but it, it, yeah, it's a lot of words. But there's other stuff out there, the stuff I did, could not include, you know, like, the whole backstory about Lawrence of Arabia, how they got, the stuff that I talk about that maybe is a bit of bigger...
1: Well, it just strikes me that you're kind of thought. uniquely placed to kind of analyse what they're doing and, and this. And, and, and having the backstory with Dudley Clark, I would have thought he's an incredibly useful backdrop to... Writing about the SAS in the Second World War, and, and having been in the SAS yourself, and having done all this research, right, I thought you're just really well placed to place to do it. I mean,
2: yeah, and I think I think you know, was, and I don't yes, think anyone's yes, going to get bored of yeah. it, and,
1: and and you know, new perspectives no. and stuff. I mean, I've, I've, I'm yeah. absolutely fascinated by all those operations in northern France, northwest France, and northwest Europe, and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Basket and Houndsworth and all that kind of stuff. And I just think there's yeah. you know the context of that and the wider context, you know, for someone who really, really knows what they're talking about um i think would be amazing and that has just been fascinating absolutely fascinating so thank you so much for coming on really appreciate and i think everyone's gonna absolutely love it and i would urge everyone to go out and buy the book because it's terrific Uh, it's called sas speed aggression surprise the untold secret origins of the sas and as you know we don't like plugging books on the we have ways pod too much unless they're written by al or myself Um, but i am going to plug this one because it's terrific thank you for listening everyone cheerio cheers